So I missed all of you last week. I was pulpit swapping with another pastor in Irvine, and a Jeff Sir was here. And I've heard reports, good reports, of how everything went last week. And I heard rumors that Jeff was talking about some kind of bromance that he had with me. And not sure what that's all about, but that was very flattering to hear. I did, when I was at New Life Irvine last week, I did assure them that pulpit swap is nothing like wife swap or the reality show of that, of that sort. So we would all be coming back to our pulpits today. And it's really good to be back with you. And I, I miss being with you. Today we start a new series called Gospel Rhythms, and we have a brand new graphic. There it is up there for you. I'm really excited about it because it's something that I've been excited to share with you all as a church ever since I learned that I would be coming and that God was calling me to be here uh, at Trinity. As I was praying and thinking about it, it seemed like the new year was a really good time to introduce this series and to talk about these concepts with you. So we'll be looking at this series, Gospel Rhythms, as a six-part series. And as it is the start of a new year, now is the time for resolutions, is it not? I don't know how many of you have made New Year's resolutions. Are you resolutions people? One, two, three. Okay. There's some more. Okay, good. How many of you have broken those already? All right, there we go. It didn't take too long. There are all kinds of resolutions that we might make. We might say, I'm going to lose such and such amount of pounds. I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to have better time management. I'm going to read more, limit my use of devices, all kinds of things that we might say are resolutions. Most of the resolutions that we make this time of year tend to be too big. We just kind of overreach and we don't take small steps towards our goal. Or sometimes they tend to be too vague. Where it's like, well, how am I going to achieve that resolution anyway? So a lot, of, a lot of our resolutions, they rely on the power of self-help or our willpower in order for us to achieve them. Which is, in part, why we break them most of the time. There's one study that I saw that I came across that said, for most people, or the study that they did on a, a group of people, that it was an 88% fail rate for New Year's resolutions. So not very good, 12% success rate. If you have a resolution, I didn't say all that to discourage you. Keep going strong on that. But if we want to make changes to our lives, changes that last and stick, I want to submit that it's not by resolutions, new resolutions, but it's by new rhythms, new rhythms. There are all kinds of insights, not only from theologians and biblical scholars, also neuroscientists and uh, social scientists on the power of rhythms, or we might say habits, that habits are what drive us. Uh, habits, as we change our habits, our lives are changed. Um, let me explain by sharing an illustration about a little bit of background and then an illustration. About eight years ago, somewhere around there, I noticed something about my own life, my own spiritual life, and the spiritual lives of the people in the church where I was pastoring at the time, that a lot of us had the same experience, that we grew a lot in knowledge. We're part of the Presbyterian church, so we like theology, we tend to be thinkers, and a lot of us had these gospel light bulbs, I'll call them, go on, where it's like, wow, it's about God, not about me, it's about his grace and not what I do. That's the key 
the foundation of the Christian life. So these gospel light bulbs were going off. A lot of us had experienced growth and change and moments of great emotional experience of connection with God and our faith. But our everyday lives, in our everyday lives, in our routines, in our habits, in our practices, in our rhythms, we are experiencing a disconnect. How does it look for my life, my entire life, my everyday life to be shaped and formed by the gospel? A lot of our Christian life, we tend to have like sporadic event-based kind of things happening where we'll attend a small group for a season. We'll attend a class. We'll try a new discipline. Or we'll come on Sundays. All important things. But what does it mean when we ask the question, what would it look like to shape my entire life rhythms around the gospel? And now here an illustration. About this time when I was thinking about this and wrestling with these things, a mentor came into my life for a season. His name's Scotty Smith, another pastor in our denomination. And he liked to share this illustration about some, the disconnect that we sometimes feel in our spiritual lives. He would say, sometimes it's like I can hear the lyrics of the gospel, but I'm not hearing the music. It's like I just have the lyrics of the gospel and not the music. And when you read the lyrics to a powerful song, it can impact you, but it doesn't have anywhere near the impact of when the music is joined to the lyrics. And he was saying that's what it's, that's what it's meant to be. That's how our spiritual lives are meant to feel and to function. And then I thought, as he was sharing that, I said, well, if I don't hear the music, I just feel like I just have the lyrics. How do I recover it? How do I get that music back? And then I was thinking, in order to have a song, you need to have three things. You need to have the music, you need to have the lyrics, but you also need to have the rhythm. When our kids were learning piano at the very beginning, I was surprised because they spent a lot of time on rhythm. You got to learn the notes. Of course, there are lyrics to, to the songs as well. But if you don't know what's a quarter note, or a whole note, or an eighth note, the song will be all messed up. It won't sound anything like it should. But rhythm is just as important as music and lyrics. The lyrics would be the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God. The music would be our heart and affections and our emotions coming alive to these things. But we need rhythms as well, patterns, habits, practices, that bring that song of the gospel into our lives and make it sing. So the gospel rhythms, that's what this is all about. What might those things be? What kind of practices should we be growing and stretching in as followers of Jesus? So the gospel rhythms that we're going to be going over these next few weeks are six core spiritual habits that are meant to form our everyday life around the gospel and mission. They're not resolutions. It's not based on willpower. It's not self-help, but these are rhythms of grace by God's power and by faith. I want to share this translation or this paraphrase of the message, if we could get that up on the screen, by Eugene Peterson. Here's what he says. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. You'll learn how to live freely. 
and lightly. That's Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace that put us in step with following Jesus. So I believe as we learn, I'll share these six rhythms in a moment, to practice these in community slowly, simply over time that we will move in the direction of more deep and profound spiritual health and impact on our community. So for those of you here, my Christian friends, I pray this series will help you establish, maybe for the first time, or maybe just reinvigorate yourself in these practices. And for those who are not Christians, who are here and who are exploring, who are thinking about the faith and asking questions, this series will, I, I hope, help you answer the question, if I choose to become a follower of Jesus, what will it look like? What, was that, what will that mean practically on an everyday basis? Will it be burdensome or will it be beautiful? Will it be restrictive or freeing? So the plan is we'll go over these in our sermon series one at a time. We'll be learning these and, and processing it. But over the next six months, this is still a part of the introduction in terms of how we're going to put these into practice. Over the next six months, we're going to take one at a time and just practice it for that month. So January, our rhythm to practice this month will be listen, listening to the scriptures regularly, consistently, and meditatively. And that's what this sermon is on. But let me just quickly share the six rhythms. Let's put that slide up. Here they are. I don't know how well you can read those, and we'll be coming back to these. But the six rhythms are giving blessing, opening our lives to community and hospitality, Sabbath regularly for worship and rest, praying daily for grace renewal for ourselves and others, engaging people intentionally to help them move toward Jesus, and then today's listen to the scriptures consistently and meditatively. You don't have to write all those down right now. We'll be coming back to those and I'll be sharing those and talking about those a lot. So although there is a great order, and if you didn't notice, there is an acronym that spells out the word gospel. And yes, I'm very happy and proud of that. But I'm messing it all up because I'm not starting with G or give this morning. I want to start with listen. We're going to talk about listening to Scripture consistently and meditatively. We're going to be looking at Psalm 1. As you, as we follow, as you follow along, there will be three things that I'd like for us to see, and you can find them in your outline. One, the importance of listening. Two, the obstacles to listening to Scripture. And three, the blessings of listening to Scripture. Psalm 1 is unique in at least three ways. First, it's first. It's the first psalm of all 150 psalms. It was chosen before all the other ones to specifically be the first in the order of the psalms. Second, there's no title. There's no author. If you look at some of the other psalms, you'll see there's titles and authors that are given, but not in this psalm. And third, it's more like a combination of something out of Proverbs and a psalm. If you read it, you could say, well, this would fit in the book of Proverbs if you're familiar with Proverbs. So it's more like a psalm verb. It's a wisdom psalm. And so you take all those three things together, and from very early on, Christians and scholars have realized Psalm 1 is meant to be seen as the gateway into all the rest of the Psalms. It's the introduction. It's the gateway. And the Psalms, what are they? It's the Bible's handbook of prayer, of what a spiritual life looks like and how to engage in relationship with God. They show us what a close and intimate relationship with God looks like. 
But before we're allowed into the rest of the Psalms, Psalms is structured and written so that we have to pass through Psalm 1 first. So Psalm 1, it's like this. Psalm 1 is like a bouncer out front to the gateway of the Psalms and saying, you have to get through me in order to get into here. I used to be a bouncer while I was in college. No, I'm just kidding. I just had had to say that. A bouncer is a person of such physical stature that they are too intimidating for you to think that you will make it past them into whatever door or place they are guarding. That does not describe me. But Psalm 1 is saying, before entering in, before you're ready to learn what it looks like to live in communion, in relationship with God, you need to pause, you need to make sure you understand what Psalm 1 is saying. The first thing that I want to point out about Psalm 1 is that it shows us the importance of listening. And it does this by saying there are essentially only two ways of living. The word way in the Hebrew is the same word that's used for road or path. In this life, Psalm 1 is saying we have the choice between two roads or two ways of life. Verse 6 shows us those two ways. It says the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. One, it says, is like a tree, the other like chaff. One is rooted and fruitful and healthy. The other is dead and weightless and unsubstantial. One of these ways leads to God and intimate communion and relationship and experience with God, and the other leads us away from God. So how do we know, then, what path we are on? The psalm says, that the two ways of living are primarily defined by who or what we are listening to. Either the counsel of the wicked or the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord, which in the Hebrew is Torah, is not necessarily speaking just of the laws or the rules in the Bible, but a better translation is God's instruction or God's teaching. We can think of it and we can take it to mean all of the scriptures, the word of God. And so the choice is either the counsel of the wicked those who seek to live and make, li- make sense of life apart from God, or to live listening to the Word of God. And so Psalm 1 says, if you aren't committed to learning to listen, learning to listen to God, then don't bother coming in to the rest of the Psalms, the place of close relationship with God. And that's because you can't have a close relationship with someone including God, but anybody else in our lives, without being committed to listen to them. That's true for any relationship. If you aren't committed to listening to the other person, there's going to be breakdown, there's going to be conflict, and all kinds of issues, right? One of the most important marriage skills that I've learned, I'm still very much learning this one, and it's one that I teach whenever I'm doing counseling, is something called active listening. And you're probably familiar with it, a lot of you. Active listening is simple. It just means listening without interruption. And then after listening, you just reflect back or repeat back what you heard, just so the other person knows that the message was received, right? Active listening. It sounds simple, but it's so hard. (laughs) Sometimes in in our marriage, when Amelia is talking to me, sometimes she can just tell by the look on my face, that I'm not listening 
Like, did you just hear what I said? Were you listening to that? And I have to say, no, I'm sorry. Can you just repeat that? My mind was just listening to something else. And here's the thing. The, the reason we need to learn active listening is not because we're not listening at all. It's because we're listening to something else as that person is talking. We're listening to, okay, here's a defense I'm going to make to what they're saying. Here's the excuse that I'm ready to say. Here's my response. Or I'm thinking about and listening to, oh, man, here's what I have so much to do at work. Here's what's on my to-do list. All that is happening in our heads, and we're just listening to that as opposed to what the other person is saying. It's the same with our spiritual lives. It's not a question of whether or not I'm listening. It's a question of which voices am I listening to and how are they shaping my life. Psalm 1 says it very starkly. It says there's no neutrality. There's no third path. We are shaped by the voices we listen to, and we need to know which voices are shaping our lives and learn to listen to the voice of God in his word if we are to know him and to flourish in life as he intends. One biblical scholar estimates that the word listen appears 1,500 times in the Bible and that the most frequent complaint or issue God has with his people is the failure to listen. That's the importance of listening. So if we're going to learn to listen, it's important that we need to know, well, what are the obstacles for us in learning this and what are the blessings and how do we do it? So let's look at the obstacles, because Psalm 1 also helps us to identify these, these obstacles that we face in listening to Scripture. In verse 1, if you look at verse 1 with me, I want to point out a few things about it. It shows us what a progression away from God looks like. Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkey, one of my teachers, he pointed this out. He said, the wicked are those who do wrong. The sinners are those who make a lifestyle of wrong. And the mockers, the scoffers, are not only those who do wrong, but mock those who do good. So there's a progression. The wicked, the sinners, the mockers. Verse 1 also shows us how someone takes this path, what it looks like to take this path and way of life. It starts with counsel, the counsel of the wicked, the pattern of thinking, and how what or who we listen to occupies our thoughts and our hearts. And then it says it moves to a pattern of behavior, the way of the sinners, and then to a pattern of identification. When you sit in the seat with someone, that's saying, I'm identifying with you. I'm with you. So we go from listening all the way to identity. And how we listen shapes who we are. That's what it's saying. So verse 1 is saying the obstacles then to listening to Scripture is that there will be a lot of other voices vying for our attention, seeking to shape and form and influence our lives and our hearts and offering us a different vision of life, a vision where God is not central, a vision where God is not important. And the psalm is saying listening to these will set us on a path, on a way of life away from God. So now I want to be clear before I go on a disclaimer. This doesn't mean where I'm not going with this is saying, so Christians, we should live in a bubble. And we should only watch Christian movies and listen to Christian music and that sort of thing. That's not what this is saying. Because that would violate the call for Christians to serve and bless the world and learn to listen and understand our neighbors and our efforts to love them and to live with them. 
The verbs here are very important with this. To walk means not just um, I'm kind of hanging out over here and listening to what you have to say. To walk means I'm, li- I'm listening and I'm trusting in what you are saying. I'll go with you. To stand means to say, I'm here with you. I'm standing with you in your way of life. And to sit means I'm identifying myself with you. So it's not about withdrawal, but about discernment and awareness of which messages we're trusting, which messages are shaping my life, and what are the messages that I'm building my identity upon. So learning how to listen to God, to delight and meditate on His Word, while living in a world where there's all kinds of different voices and messages around us, will mean that we need to look at our habits and our practices and our rhythms of listening. And so I see at least three cultural rhythms at work that shape the way that we listen to any voice. And I want to just go through each one of those quickly here. We can put those up on the, on the screen. These are things we have to unlearn for us to learn to listen to God. These three things, listening passively, listening overload, and listening selectively. Listening passively. If you look at verse 1, there's also a progression there to increased passivity. goes from walking, then it goes to standing, and then it goes to sitting. One of our main listening rhythms in our culture today is just we love to passively consume our media. It's messages and all the messages around us for entertainment and not engagement. We scroll our social media feeds kind of mindlessly, not even sure what we're looking for. Something interesting must be here on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. We just keep scrolling through. We watch news, just kind of vegetating, going, well, what horrible things have happened in the world today? Not necessarily to engage or to think carefully about what we're seeing, but just as a form of entertainment. We consume movies and music just as consumers. And some of you may have heard me say this before. I share this a few times whenever I lead a class on marriage or a couple's class. But I always ask in those classes, I think it's an important question, where did you get your vision of a relationship or marriage from? What formed that vision for you? What were the voices that shaped that? So most people will share something like, well, it was my parents or it was this couple. And I'll always have to share that my Vision for marriage was largely informed by 90s R&B music. So my teachers were Key Sweat and Belle Biv DeVoe and Boys to Men, if you know those profound teachers on marriage. It's kind of a joke, but it's not really a joke, because for me it made marriage and relationship into this, this idol to worship. You build your life around it. The song of your heart is for your beloved. All meaning and continual bliss forever comes from this relationship. That was the theme of about 99% of 90s R&B music. So that's what shaped my heart. And the reason I I share that is because in, in order for us to listen to Scripture, we need to unlearn these rhythms of passive listening. We need to be discerning, be thoughtful. We need to learn to listen purposefully, paying attention to what's shaping us. Second rhythm is listening overload. Similarly 
to listening passively. We live in a media-saturated culture. Everywhere we go, we have our trusted companion, our device, and all kinds of media for us to take with us wherever we go. So we're surrounded by messages like never before in human history. Even when we pump gas, there's a TV for us to watch. I don't know why that has to be there, but I watch it and I get my weather from that. The person who coined the term, this was in the 60s, the term information overload, his name was Bertram Gross. I want to share what he said. There's the quote up there on the screen. He said, information overload occurs when the amount of input to a system exceeds its processing capacity. Decision makers have fairly limited cognitive processing capacity. Consequently, when information overload occurs, it is likely that a reduction in decision quality will occur. A bunch of technical language there, but he's saying when the too much is going on here, we don't even know how to make good decisions anymore. Some other um, studies have been done. A neuroscientist at MIT, Earl Miller, who's one of the world experts on divided attention, he says, our brains are not wired to multitask well. Uh, some of you are like, no, I know how to multitask. I am the champion multitasker, but he says it. He's from MIT, so he has to be right. He says, when people think they're multitasking, they're actually just switching from one task to another very rapidly. Every time they do so, there's a cognitive cost. He says, multitasking creates more stress, increases adrenaline, an overstimulated brain, mental fog, and scrambled thinking. It creates a dopamine addiction feedback loop, rewarding the brain for losing focus and for constantly searching for external stimulation. Well, there's a lot of caution there for us to take in. But for our purposes, I want to say this. In order to learn to listen to Scripture, we need to unlearn the rhythm of listening overload and learn to listen attentively to the most important voice, which is God's. Last rhythm that affects us in our culture is listening selectively. Did anybody catch what the word of the year was for Oxford 2016? Anyone? Well, I get to share it with you now. The word of the year, Oxford Dictionary 2016, is post-truth. Post-truth was the word they picked. Post-truth means that objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In a post-fact or post-truth culture, since we choose our sources of information and who to trust, we all tend towards only listening to those things that, already, that will confirm our already held beliefs and biases. The result is that if we get to select who or what we listen to, each person is the final authority then on what is true. In order for us to learn to listen to scripture, we need to unlearn the rhythm of listening selectively and learn to listen submissively to God and his word. So these rhythms Listening passively, listening overload, listening selectively can affect us, not in just how they become ways in which our lives are di directed away from God, but they can also be brought into the rhythms of how we end up relating and listening to God and his word. So Psalm 1 is a warning. I said it's like a bouncer. Yes, it's a warning, but it's probably more of an invitation than a warning, less of a bouncer that's a little too threatening. It's more of an invitation, like when you're walking downtown somewhere and there's a, a hostess out front of a restaurant and she's saying, come, 
He or she is saying, come and eat. You want to come in here. We have good food. Come sit. Psalm 1 is more of an invitation for us to experience this blessing. And it even shows us how to do that. The very first word in Psalm 1, if you look down there, some of your translations will say, how blessed. There's two words in the Hebrew for blessing. One is barak and one is ashrei. This is ashrei. And it carries more of the meaning of, of happiness or of fortunate, being a fortunate person or of flourishing. So a translation or a paraphrase could become experience how your life flourishes as you learn to delight in and meditate on the scriptures. And Psalm 1 actually helps us by showing us how we can do this. It says there's two ways that we do this. One is by delighting in the word, and two is by meditating on the word day and night. These two things go together. Because what we delight in is often what we end up meditating on day and night, right? These are interconnected things. What we meditate on day and night reveals what we delight in. If our delight is not in God and his word, then it will be on something else. Consider these alternate delights. Happy is the person who, whose delight is in his or her wealth and financial stability. And on his or her portfolio and savings, they meditate day and night. Happy is the person whose delight is in their success and on their performance and accomplishments or failures, they meditate day and night. Happy is the person who delights in a relationship and how this relationship is going, they meditate day and night. Happy is the person who delights in their comfort and on their next vacation or purchase or experience or escape, they meditate day and night. So our delight, it can be detected by what we meditate on, but the reverse is also true. Our delight can be redirected by what we meditate on day and night. This is the power of Scripture. Bruce Walke, again, I'll quote from him. He says, when a person meditates on the word day and night, one is transplanted from one's ego-centered world into a God-centered world that serves others. Meditation. Meditation is now a very cool thing in our culture. I was at Starbucks working a little bit this week, and I saw a flyer up on the board. There was a meditation seminar at Barnes & Noble. I don't know how many people attended, but it was just up there for everyone to go. And I was looking at our community college nearby, Santiago Community College. There's a 13-week class at the community college that you can take on meditation. So there's a hunger to learn to quiet our souls all the busyness, all the noises and voices going on in our minds and learn to be still. And there's some value in learning to do that. But Christian meditation isn't emptying our minds and our hearts to tune out everything. It's learning to fill our hearts and our minds with God's word so we're tuning in to God and his voice. Meditation is not just reading, not studying, necessarily, but meditating literally in the Hebrew is like chewing, chewing on the words, savoring them, tasting them so that you can digest them. So in contrast to passive listening, meditation is listening purposefully. In contrast to overload listening, meditation is listening attentively. And in contrast to listening selectively, meditation is listening 
submissively to God. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, said this about meditation. I thought it was so good. He said, meditation without reading is erroneous. Reading without meditation is barren. The reason we come away so cold from reading the Word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. Psalm 1 says meditation has the power of redirecting the fire of our hearts, the delight of our hearts to God and to the priorities of His Word. Psalm 1 also shows us the results. There's two pictures given in the psalm, two lives and two images given for these lives. One is the tree and one is shaft. So shaft, what is shaft? My first experience, my hands-on first experience with shaft was when somebody taught me how to roast coffee. So somebody was taking me through the process, and I didn't know there was such a thing as coffee chaff, but there is. When you're roasting uh, the raw beans, the little outside husk kind of peels off, and you got to get rid of it and just blow it out. It's very light, and it just kind of comes off. You don't want that to be a part of your coffee. It's just the useless leftovers. So Psalm 1 is saying any, anything that we delight in other than God and His Word that we meditate on day and night, our success, our wealth, comfort, control, even another person, good things. But if they are our ultimate delight, it's like chasing the wind. It's like chaff. But those who learn the rhythm of listening to God in His Word are like a tree. This tree is nourished and healthy by a stream of water. It's fruit-bearing. Fruit is born gradually, often imperceptibly, and slowly. It's not instant, but it's inevitable for the healthy tree. And this is a drought-resistant tree. It says, even though it goes through seasons, its leaf does not wither. There's an interesting connection here that scholars notice, an interesting contrast in Psalm 1. Because you may be asking as you look at this, as the psalm says, his delight is on the law, and on it he meditates day and night. And we go, well, how, how would you delight in, in a law? Like, I was talking to, to Eddie, who's in the law profession. I was like, do you have, like, giant books of laws? He's like, yeah, I have tons of giant books of laws. They're, like, bigger than dictionaries. And I was saying, if you had this, law, this book of laws up here, and I say, here you go, delight in this book. Meditate on these laws day and night. He would say, no, thank you. <laughs> that doesn't sound very interesting. Maybe if you are super into law, then that would be a delight to you. The point I'm making is that if we come to the Word of God and expect it to be like a giant book of codes and laws and rules for us to follow, then it won't be our delight. But Psalm 1 is not saying that's what the Word of God is. And in fact, we know that the Word of God, the Torah, the instruction, the teaching of God is largely a story. It's a story about one person. And what's fascinating about this psalm is that at the very beginning, it says how happy or how blessed is the man or the person, singular there's a singular person who's compared to the scoffers, the wicked, the sinners, the crowd. One person compared to a crowd. 
So the images then, there's one person who stands against the tide of sin, who stands firm in constant delight and meditation on the word of God, whose life is a tree of life amidst a world of blowing shaft all around. A person of true happiness, true joy. Everything they did aligned with the delight of God, their father, and so they prospered. And there's only one person who fits that description, and that is Jesus. And instead of simply enjoying the blessing of being this flourishing tree, we know that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and by his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter chapter 2. So our delight and our meditation on Scripture is knowing that every time we open it up, every time we encounter the Word of God, that we are being taken to behold more clearly, once again, Jesus, who is for us our righteousness, who is for us our life. And that is the delight in encountering afresh that story all over again. That though we often walk, stand, and sit in the wrong places and have our lives shaped by those things, though that is true of us, Jesus has stood in our place. And so he can redirect us. He is the tree of an ending life. This month, as I said, we are going to be practicing this rhythm together, the, the, the rhythm of listening. So just a word here on a practical application real quickly. As we learn to grow in the rhythm of listening to Scripture, there are three things that I think that often stand in our way. One, we don't have a plan to do it. Two, we try to do it all by ourselves. And three, we read for information and not for transformation. And so we miss out on the delight. So some of you have heard the announcements and heard me talk about this already, but we're using a tool called CBR, Community Bible Reading. And so this month, I want to invite you into that. Join us together as a community. We try to learn and grow and stretch in the rhythm of learning to listen consistently and meditatively to the scriptures, because we really do need each other to learn this, to learn to discern the other voices going on, and to learn to see Jesus no matter where we're reading in the Word of God. This morning, before we share in our communion meal together, I want to point you back to how we began our service. So if you will, go back to the call to worship. Page one in your bulletin or page two. The invitation to come to the Lord's Supper is a visible, is a tangible, is a tactile way we practice the rhythm of learning to listen. And delight in God and his grace. And so I'm going to read again from Isaiah, Isaiah 55. He said, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy the chaff? Instead, listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. As you come this morning, come meditatively 
Come expectantly. Come to delight in the grace of God given to you in his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. It's a challenge to us, but we know it's an invitation, just like those words we just read in Isaiah 55, that you're calling us to come and to listen to you and to be delighted by your word. Your word that, although it does challenge us and change our ways, it puts us on the path to flourishing, to joy, to prospering the way that you intended life to be. Lord, I pray that this time that we have here, where we share this time at this table, that you would use this time to let the word sink more deeply into our hearts, that you would develop in us a hunger and a thirst that is directed towards you, even as you satisfy our hunger and thirst by this bread and wine, a reminder of the sufficiency and the all-satisfying power of the gospel. Help us develop into a people who live by this rhythm, who learn to listen to your life-giving voice. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.